0: Have you ever been ready to just throw your hands up when it comes to the subject of prayer? Have you ever been just done? You ever been just at that point where you're going, uh, uh, no, I, I, I can't do it. I'm, 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 I'm at the end of my road. Some common prayer frustrations are based on my own experience and conversations with others. See if any of these sound familiar. I know I should pray. But I just don't know where to start. I don't know where to begin. Or how about prayer is for those really spiritual people, right? Those people that you hear that make prayers and you go, wow, I could never pray like that. Or how about I used to pray. I used to enjoy praying, but the joy is gone, and lately I just don't pray. Or my favorite, I'm just too busy to pray. Finally, do our prayers matter anyways? I mean, does God hear? And if so, what difference does that make? Why? Why do we pray? Well, when we ask these questions, and a lot of times we do it without ever speaking it out loud, we're afraid someone else will hear. We are not alone. When we feel this way, we are in good company. Many disciples who have gone before us have felt this way. It's part of the prayer development process. And so Jesus says in the text, Luke 18, Luke, Luke tells us that Je- here's what Jesus did. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. See, Jesus knew he was in touch with the common frustration, the common burden of prayer. And how difficult it can be. And so he tells them a story. To the effect that they ought to always pray. And to not lose heart. That gets my attention. Because I know I need encouragement. To pray. And to not lose heart. So I'm anxious to see where this story is going. At the onset of this story. We're coming off of chapter 17. Where Jesus deals with a subject. That we also treat with the same kind of way it's kind of out of sight out of mind we know it's important but it's just we don't see it every day so we just sort of either put it on the back burner or we get consumed with it and that would be the subject of the end of the world anybody ever been preoccupied with the end of the world or known someone who's preoccupied with the end of the world anybody ever watched a zombie movie or a set of series of tv shows that sort of thing you had a neighbor who just couldn't stop about the end of the world um prayer and the end of the world which Jesus talks about here in this text are two things that we have thoughts and wonders and concerns about but we just sometimes don't know if we should ask him or not and it's a little bit strange. I mean we go all all we run the gamut. And uh I had this neighbor when we lived up by Dalhart and he was preoccupied with the end of the world. He was so preoccupied with the end of the world, he moved from New Jersey to Sedan, New Mexico, which barely has a post office. It was only open a couple hours in the morning, not on Fridays or Saturdays. Um, and uh, he had moved there to try to protect himself and his wife from the end of the world or whatever version of the end of the world he was worried about. And so I learned about this one day when I went uh, next down the road to borrow a tool because he always told me I've got loads of tools. If you ever need a tool, I was like, okay, well, always need a tool. So I go down there. I walk in this Quonset barn and You know, massive quartz barn. It's the size of this sanctuary, or maybe a little bigger, and uh, built for parking tractors and large equipment in, storing wheat and grain and that sort of thing. Instead of wheat and grain or tractors, what I find is like an army surplus store. It's rows and rows of stacked ammunition or guns, mind you. The guy doesn't own rows and rows of ammunition, rows and rows of tools not out of the box. And I'm like, man, I don't want to get into your private affairs, but uh, <laughs> what's, what's all this stuff? You know, but he was preparing for what he thought would be some version of the end of the world. And he was going to be, by golly, protected. He thought those were the first two things of being in shortage. And, you know, And I, I'm i all about canning food for the winter and that kind of stuff. You know, I'm, I'm all about being prepared. This guy was, was preoccupied. He was worried. You know, he wouldn't get out. They wouldn't get out. They wouldn't talk to people. They were just confined to their little tiny, you know, edge of the wheat field there and it was just always fascinating to me i'd drive by that barn, and i'd be like that's an incredible museum in there uh but he's he's ready for the end of the world anyways we have strange theories about the end of the world and we have strange theories about prayer and we come by them some of them very honestly right People all the time predicting the end of the world. Every few years, somebody's found a new date for when Jesus is going to come back. We know Jesus is going to return. At least we say that in the creeds. We know it's important, right? Christ will return to, get to judge the living and the dead. And we look forward to that day, that triumphant day when all evil and injustice is judged and put to right. And we celebrate that. That'll be That's, that's the culmination of God's great story. So we look forward to that day, but we have no idea when it's going to happen. And when we start thinking we do, we get into a big old mess. You know, people start looking at numbers in Revelation that were meant to be symbolic. And they go, oh, yeah, I have these numbers up here. And it looks like 1888. That's when Jesus is going to come back. And then later it's 1925. And then it was 1942. Now it's 1950. And all the one and just, you know, not too long ago. You'll see it in the news every once in a while. Crazy pastor in Florida predicts into the world. Says it's going to be this day. That day comes and goes. And so we just get jaded. It's like, well. Maybe the end of the world's not going to happen. All the experts are saying that's going to world's going to end, and people are stockpiling goods. And anyways, prayer and the end of the world. Jesus addresses both here. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. He tells this parable about a judge in a city and a widow in the in the same place who has a need for justice. So she goes to the judge to get justice, and she doesn't get it. And so Jesus tells us in the story a few things about the widow and a few things about the judge. And these are important characteristics. We don't know their names. It's a story. Jesus is telling us. Okay, suppose that. The judge he tells us about has all the power and the privilege. The widow, obviously, does not have power and privilege. Uh, the judge explicitly says he has no fear of God and he's no respecter of people. Right? He just I mean, he's a bad judge. If you don't fear God and you don't respect people, you're not going to be a very good judge. You're not going to be a just judge. So we're meant to see from the initial go that this is a wicked judge. This is a bad dude who's in power. He's not in line with the God of Moses. And if he were, you know, justice would be important. But he's clearly not. He doesn't fear God. So justice, eh, whatever. That's why he ignores the widow when she comes to him and says, hey, you got to help me out. You need to hear my case. Give me justice against my adversary, right? I have enemies. I have people that are trying to take my stuff. What little I have. I'm a widow. I have no one to protect me. Help me out. And at first he ignores her, right? He sends her away. But after he, he, he refused for a while. I love this. We don't know how long. If she came three more times or 300 more times. But at some point, the guy gets tired. You know, he gets worn down and he says, all right, he just says to himself, I don't fear God. I don't respect people. But because this widow keeps wearing me out, I'm going to give her justice. Isn't this a great story? The, the the phrase in Greek is it comes from the boxing ring. It's like this lady is just wearing me out, right? And it's either meant for us to think like, well, who knows? It's words now. It might be you know blows to the face next time. So I'm 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 kind of you know looking out for myself here. I'm finally gonna give. I'm gonna, at least gonna listen. I'm gonna hear her case because I'm tired of her wearing me out and coming to me all the time. She just won't let up. And Jesus says in the story. Listen to what the unrighteous judge says. Right? Listen to the unjust judge. And then he uses this figure of speech. Listen to the unjust judge. And now what about God? If the unjust judge behaves this way, how much more might God behave this way? And that gets us into the heart of the text on prayer. So, Luke 18, coming out of the context of Luke 17, where people are, the Pharisees are asking, you know, where is the kingdom? And when is it coming? And what's it going to be like? And Jesus says, don't worry about the time, right? The kingdom of God is not something that you can say, oh, yeah, hey, it's over there. I see it over And oh, yeah, it's coming over here. And it's going to be there. And if you all congregate in this place, well, it'll come then or when the moon's just right or something. It's not going to be that way. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is among you, right? It's, it's around. It's, it's, it's here. And Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment of God's mission. I you know, I represent the kingdom of God, I am the kingdom of God. Don't worry about the time, but pay attention to the now. So chapter 18 draws us into the hope of God's time. Out of the preoccupation of our time of God's timing. Jesus has reframed the question it's not when, it's not where, but it's how will we, as God's people, wait how will we wait? How will we respond while we wait? It's it's kind of a call to, to wake up. It's not a call to ignore the question about prayer or the end of the world, but it's a call to wake up and pay attention to now if it's true that prayer is important and that the end of the world is a reality. It seems to me that usually the end of the world talk results in one of two responses you know whether you're at the old sawdust trail revival and the preacher says you know what if you leave this place today and you get hit by a mack truck crossing third street Do you know where you're going to spend eternity whether whether it's one of those quandaries or whether it's just talk about oh things are so bad and it's just getting awful and and, and we may not have tomorrow you know it's old garth brooks song if, if tomorrow never comes will i will my loved ones know that i love them and Did I tell my wife? Did I tell my kids? And those are all good things. But it's like we usually end up one of two places. We either end up with, okay, the world is ending tomorrow. I better get right with God. That's the one you hear a lot. I got to get my business in order. Got to get right with God. I got to get that one-time transaction. I got to get back on the workbench, back on the anvil. I got to get my stuff right, right, right here today, so that if tomorrow, I'll be in good shape, right? Or people say, hey, you know, if it's really true that the world's going to end and things are really bad and stuff's going wild and all the stuff, you only live once. Let's live it up, right? Let's see what I got in the bank. Let's see what I got to play with, what tools I have at my disposal. I got stuff around me. Well, heck, I could, you know, I can go do something. Let's have some fun. And Those are both right instincts, you know, to to get right with God and to live it up. Those are beautiful things, beautiful responses from the human heart. They're the right instincts, but they're off by degrees. Both responses lack the everyday, patient, obedient, readiness quality that Jesus is looking for. And it's almost like a combination of both that gets at the heart of the matter. Right? Yes, get right with God. Absolutely. And live and fight and pray. And by all means, don't give up. The widow cried for justice. The world today cries for justice. We cry for justice. And we ask, will God see? Does God hear? Will God notice me? Will he notice these areas of injustice? We ask the question that Jesus answers. Will God not speedily bring justice? And then he answers our question, and then he leaves us with a final question in this text. Luke 18, 1 through 8. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, when Jesus does return, will he find faith on the earth? So this makes three weeks in a row that the text, as we've gone through Luke, focuses on some version of finding faith. When Christ looks, will he see faith among us? A faith that grows, a faith that swells, a faith that's like the heart, that can grow, that can atrophy. Will Christ find faith on the earth? Every day, patient, obedient, readiness, faith. Never giving up. From the context of chapter 17, and from looking at the story that Jesus tells, The opposite of faith seems to be losing heart. This seems to be what Jesus is guarding against. Will the Son of Man find faith on the earth, or will he find a people who have lost heart? Will the heartbeat be gone from God's people, or will they have risen up with faith and done the everyday, service-loving stuff that the kingdom of God depends on? How much more? If this unrighteous judge who doesn't give a rip about God or a rip about people, if he grants the widow's need because she won't stop pestering him, how much more will God be ready to hear our case, to meet with us, being not an unjust judge, but a faithful and holy and beautiful judge? Will he not hear our cries? which we persistently make to him. It's in asking these questions and trying out these proposals from Jesus that we find out that God is always more ready to serve, that God in his nature is always more ready to give than we are able to ask or to receive. This is the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ that Luke is conveying to us that we rehearse together every week. And this is why the heart is so critical. This is news that changes us. News of a God like this changes us. It reminds us that there is still hope, that there is still a promise for us to be considered among the chosen. See, Jesus mentions the chosen, the elect, those people that God predestined from before the beginning of the world Will we be among those? And lest we despair and think, well, maybe I'm just not one of God's chosen people, we're given the door, the pathway, to be among the saints, and that is faith. The gift of faith, the practice of faith, the virtue of faith places us among God's chosen people. It was Israel before us, and now it's the church, the new Israel, right? The church universal. God's rescue plan. For the world, God will not forget His chosen people. And we are invited once again to be among His chosen people by exercising the gift of faith that we have received. See, Jesus knew that life would get hard. He knew for His disciples, life life was going to get harder before it got easier. And He knew there would be constant temptations to despair, constant temptations to lose heart. Anytime you're trying to work with people, anytime you're trying to convey the peace of the gospel, you're going to run into some dead ends. As many of us know, who work with people who work to uh, speak these words and to bring this message in the world, and when it gets hard, when life gets hard, I've found that, at least for me, I tend to get scared. We get scared. Uh, we revert to behaviors that make us feel safe. We revert to behaviors that make us feel like we're in control. These are coping mechanisms for when life gets hard. And what happens every time we do that, every time I do that, my heart shrinks a little bit and my faith shrinks a little bit. It's like Jesus is gently inviting us and reminding us to wake up, to let the heart grow, to let faith be faith in our lives. Not shrink back when it gets tough. When I struggle to pray, I've realized that I depend on the prayers of others. I depend on the prayers of others. I depend on prayers like the Lord's Prayer. When I'm when I just don't know what to pray and I'm not sure where I need to be, the Lord's Prayer. Gives me guidance. I pray the Psalms. I pray the prayers of the saints that have gone before us, things that I've found and written on scraps of paper and napkins and I pray those prayers. I pray the prayers that our children pray, the simple prayers, just the bailout prayers, the prayers that trust that God is present. So for us, as we try to recover heart and recover faith, recover the practice of prayer uh, when we're losing heart, maybe for you, it's going to a Sunday school teacher, a close friend. Going to someone in whom we see the fruits of the Spirit. We can say, you know, I don't know a lot about you or what, how you pray or this, but I see these fruits in your life. Will you help me as I recover my heart and as I learn to pray again? I realize if I'm not praying, then I'm losing heart somewhere, somehow. And that's the source. You know, it's it's not because I got bad at the technology of prayer. I mean, I've studied the stuff. (laughs) It's it's not because I got bad at the technology or the equation. It's because I've lost heart. And so that is the source that I have to return to. It's part gift. It's part habit. And it's always leaning on the wisdom of others. So I want to close with reading again bits from Psalm 27. Uh, David's one of those safe places to go when you're losing heart, when prayer is a struggle. David goes through with these triumphant words in Psalm 27. The Lord is my light, my salvation. And God, you've rescued me from my enemies. And I know that I'm not alone. And my adversaries are all around. And, and and he even kind of has this conversation with his heart. He says, My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek? Don't hide your face from me. And don't cast me away. Don't forsake me. You're the God of my salvation. My father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and teach me on a level path because of my enemies. Lead me on a level path. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me. They breathe out violence. And then it's like he turns to the congregation. You know, he's praying in his psalm, and then he just turns to the people of God, and he says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I believe I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And here's how he closes the psalm. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, we hear the the commandment, you know, to take courage. We think of Joshua and be courageous, be strong and courageous, a great thing to remember. But sometimes there's just that little twist. Be strong and let your heart, take courage. See, our hearts are already created to respond this way to God. And sometimes it's just removing the inhibitions and going back to that posture of humility. Let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. And finally, Hebrews chapter 12. In that great sermon that we call the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 3. The writer commends us to consider Jesus, right? He says, consider him, Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinful people so that we would not grow weary and lose heart. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.